You're listening to World Class with Michael McFall from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. The days when Americans remembered Russia as a remnant of the Cold War are over. From interfering in elections to the annexation of Crimea to the peculiar relationship between Presidents Trump and Putin, Russia is on top of the news around the world. Today, we bring you Michael McFall and Catherine Stoner, the director and co-director of FSI, to talk about what's really happening in Russia today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Class. My name is Michael McFall. I'm the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies here at Stanford University. I'm also a professor of political science and at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford. Uh, Today, I'm speaking with my senior fellow friend, my good friend and Russia expert, uh, Professor Catherine Stoner. She is also a senior fellow at FSI, the acronym we use for the Freeman Spogli Institute, and our recently new uh, minted deputy director. Congratulations, Catherine. Thank you. Um, She's focused for a long time on Russian affairs, written several books about Russia, right now is writing a book about the domestic politics of Russian foreign policy. Uh, out in 2018 called Resurrected, oh, question mark, Resurrected, Russia's Return as a Global Power. And so today, we I just wanted to sit down with you, Catherine, and talk about the mess we're in with Russia. Uh, things are at an all-time low. President Trump just said that uh, yesterday. I think he tweeted it out yesterday. I actually agree with him on that. Uh, there's many things I disagree with uh, with President Trump. On that, I I agree. I think you got to go pretty deep into the Cold War to remember a time when things are so tense. Mm-hmm. But obviously, they weren't always that way in the post-Cold War order. There were times when it was cooperative. Uh, I worked in the government for a while, as you know. I was at the White House for three years with President Obama and then ambassador for two years in Moscow. And in those early years of the Obama administration with Medvedev were pretty cooperative. Sure. So what happened? How did we get to the place we're in today? Well, so I think there's there's a, a long trajectory, really. Um, we could start it, you know, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union even. Um, there was good cooperation, of course, between Russia or the Soviet Union as it was in the United States in the late 1980s. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev and Reagan signed arms control agreements, landmark nuclear arms control agreements. Why did How did that happen? Tell us a little bit about that cooperative period. So When people think of the Cold War, they think of, you know, almost war, but you're telling us that it wasn't always that way. Sure. So it, it you know, Mikhail Gorbachev came in as the, as the, it turned out to be last uh, general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And he knew that his his country and the system, the, the communist system was not functioning um, well. Uh, they were in terminal economic decline. Um, and they were engaged in an arms race they couldn't really afford with the United States. Um, and the system could have uh, limped along as it was, but he was really the um, part of a new generation of Soviet leaders. And, um, you know, he said rather infamously I, that he knew to live this way is impossible and that the system needed to be reformed didn't exactly know how to do that. Um, mm. But this is, of course, as you know, the uh, perestroika period um, that he begins and he tries to restructure the economy and the Communist Party 
And in doing so, he begins to sort of inadvertently, it would seem, rip the system apart. So things begin to get worse and worse. But so when things are getting worse, domestic cooperating with us, or is it because of reform that they're cooperating? So I think it's both. Okay. Uh, I think it's both. I think uh, that you know uh, because things were not so good in eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven economically, um, we begin to see Gorbachev turn in a different direction, uh, turn Soviet foreign policy into a different in a different direction, more pro-Western, more uh, liberalizing internally and therefore liberalizing in terms of foreign policy. Um, and then, um, of course, uh, the the uh, the Berlin Wall falls in November of nineteen eighty nine, and he does nothing to stop that mm-hmm. um, from happening. And communism collapses completely in the Soviet satellites. Obviously, this is very much in Western Europe and the United States interests, um, and um, a series of arms control agreements uh, to um, restrict the um, construction of new weaponry is are, are signed, um, all in this same period leading up to the final collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. So in that period, internal political change inside the Soviet Union led to more cooperation with the United States, right? It seemed to, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's fast forward to today. What's the, how does the internal dynamics inside Putin's Russia affect their foreign policy today? Right. So I think in in a number of different ways. Um, we can start even with Putin in 2000, okay. where there was... That's uh, when he first became president, Exactly, right? right. So he becomes president somewhat by surprise in uh, really in January of 2000, although he's not officially elected. Were you surprised much. personally? Um, I was surprised. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, I, was, I was surprised when he became president. Prime Minister in August of 1999 because he wasn't the first candidate everybody would have thought of. And then uh, when Yeltsin said, you know, I'd like him to be my designated successor, um, then I think we were all a little surprised in that six to six month period or so. Um, He wasn't uh, it wasn't an obvious choice. Okay. Um, So he comes in and then what does he do domestically and how does it affect our relationship with So him. domestically, he wants to re-establish uh, what he calls, a, um, you know, a vertical of power um, to tighten up center regional relations. Regions had grabbed a lot of power from the Russian federal government. Is that a euphemism for autocracy? Well, um, <laughs> and, and, and then he, he wanted, um, you know, more of the uh, rule of law okay. um, as well. But it turned out he had a very... Uh, clear idea of what that meant, which was to to was to um, make uh, it so that um, there was a lot less pluralism in society and cracking down on the newspapers uh, right away um, and freedom of the press right away um, and gradually gradually restricting the space for freedom of expression. And that was bad for U.S.-Russia relations. Well, or why do we care? Well, I think we care because we have it. It has been a tenet of American foreign policy until recently. Um, that uh, we should um, encourage democracy because um, democracies generally don't fi- don't uh, fight democracies, and that's the, really the as close as we can come to a law, I would say, in mm-hmm. political science in okay. the post-war period. Um, and um, and so liberalizing within uh, the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, and then liberalizing again through the 90s um, was actually a positive time in U.S.-Russian. Okay. Relations. So when a crackdown comes about, we see, um, I think, a gradual decline in U.S.-Russian relations. Um, although there are a few points, and, and there are 
certainly Russian area experts uh, who would argue that um, you know Putin was let down in trying to establish a reset in 2001. So he was. That's with George W. Bush, President George W. Bush, exactly, not Obama. Exactly. Right. So uh-huh. September 11th, 2001, um, Putin is purportedly the first leader to call George W. Bush and express his condolences. And he had, um, many would say, in his mind, a cooperation with um, the United States in a global war on terrorism. He considered right. himself to be fighting a, a similar war against Islamic extremists in uh, the southern Caucasus of right. Russia and Chechnya. And it turned, and it, it, he was disappointed by Bush's response in the ensuing two to three to four years. The partnership that he'd hoped would develop did not develop. Uh-huh. Um, and then the Russian economy takes off between about two thousand and three and two thousand and eight. Um, the price of oil, Russia's main export revenue, um, just skyrockets. Um, during the period that Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, was president of Russia in the 1990s, the average price of oil was about $17 a barrel. It goes up to about $121 a barrel, I think is the peak. Um, and Russia is booming economically. Um, and Putin's popular, right? And Putin's very popular. Okay. His, that's when his, his popular rating uh, really skyrockets again. Um, it, it follows nicely with the economy, actually, and the price of oil um, until about 2012 when it doesn't, um, and, and his popularity falls off uh, just as the, the price of oil f- falls, but uh, a little bit later. Um, so um, so in that period between 2003 and 2008, um, relations uh, got a little bit worse and worse and worse. Um, and as you know, when you were in government, um, when um, Mr. Obama comes in, um, he declares the need for a reset. Um, and but that was with President Medvedev, not Putin. Right, exactly. So to remind our listeners, uh, President Medvedev comes in in 2008. Eight, right. And is president until 2012 when Putin runs again. Right. And most certainly, from my point of view, uh, working at the White House at the time, we had a much more cooperative period. Uh, we got the START treaty done. We got a, 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 you know reducing nuclear weapons in the world. We got sanctions on Iran. Right supply routes to Afghanistan, rush into the WTO, it all, from my point of view, seemed to end when Putin came back. Right. Which leads me to a simplistic theory that leaders matter, and it matters who's the president. Is Tell us why that's not exactly the whole story. I think leaders do matter to a great extent. I used okay. to not think they mattered much at all, uh, that that uh, countries had interests and, and personalities didn't matter as much. But of course, they do matter. Um, and uh, there was a, a good rapport, uh, reportedly, um, in fact, you've told me that, yeah. um, between Medvedev and Obama. Yeah. And um, Medvedev certainly had a, a plan to try to modernize Russia um, and to diversify its economy in the way that, that Vladimir Putin had not. But his idea, I guess Medvedev's idea, was that now that you know Russia had this money and they had uh, reserves, um, that they could begin to uh, make it make other things than or do other things with their economy than just export oil and live off the revenues, which of course can be unpredictable. Um, and um, so yes, during this period, I think Medvedev. Uh, was very receptive. Um, a lot of good things actually did get done, and uh, and um, 
Uh, I am, it's not clear that Putin would necessarily have done those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, though he was prime minister at the time, exactly, so he, he wasn't resisting them, right? Right. So okay. and and in fact, probably more than that, right? He was implicitly approving of them. It's very difficult to believe, knowing what we know now, that he was not. Um, involved in in right. those decisions, right, right, um, and and supportive of those decisions in, uh-huh. in terms of the things, the new start and whatnot that were signed with uh, between Medvedev and and Obama. Um, so I think the I, I I think so. How did we get here? Uh, this is a long answer to a short yes. question. Well, it's um, a pretty important question, though, right? So. so I think the way we get here is in in when Mr. Putin comes back to power. It's not just his coming back to power. It's the way he comes back to the presidency hmm. and also what has happened in Russia in the in the ensuing period. So okay. although Medvedev has a has a, a reasonably good run between 2008 and 2012 and, and economic policy, despite the global depression uh, or recession, uh, Russia dips very low in terms of negative growth. Um, but with some good policy choices, actually, it comes back reasonably well. Um, but um, but Mr. Putin, for reasons I think are not perfectly well understood yet, um, decides that uh, either that his legacy is at stake and he has tied his legacy very closely to the fate of Russia, decides in the fall of 2011, as you know, to come back into the presidency. And the way he does this is he announces it at, um, at uh, the United Party Congress, United Russia Party Congress, um, and um, he he presents it as a fait accompli, and that this was discussed, and this is this had been what was planned, in in fact, in two thousand and eight when mm-hmm. Dmitry Medvedev became president. And there's a, a lot of backlash uh, against that. That I, and he's clearly very surprised by this. And I thought he was popular though. So he was prime minister at the time, okay. um, and so he was still popular, but but uh, nowhere you know where he had been when he when he left the presidency, um, and um, I think he was surprised that um, that the the fact that he just declared this and and that people reacted negatively on the streets and came out on the streets. Um, in December of, of 2011, um, to protest what they viewed to be uh, corrupt uh, legislative elections for the Duma, and his party didn't do quite as well as anticipated, um, but it still did pretty well. And and uh, people, at least in Moscow and St. Petersburg and a few other big cities in Russia, uh, heavily protested against that. And we began to see signs saying uh, Russia without Putin, um, and um, that we want. We want honest elections. So that also, I think, shook him up. And I, I think what Mr. Putin fears the most is his own street um, because, you know, NATO can't really bring him down. The United States won't bring him down. Um, but his own street can bring him down. And, and um, in the 20th century, the, the Russian people did that a few times to their leaders. Um, and I think that, that he was shocked um, by what he saw. Okay, but how does that affect us? Why did U.S.-Russian relations take a nosedive after those events you just described? So I think it's pretty, pretty clearly linked. Actually, um, the uh, uh, Mr. Putin sort of digests this, and he does win the um, the election. Um, and if if you could see me on a podcast, I'm doing um, I'm doing air quotes around election and win, um, because there wasn't really a, a, a real opponent um, for him to, to beat in the elections. Um, and, and he dominated um, the airwaves and 
Um, it, it wasn't a free and fair election by pretty much anybody's evaluation, of course. So he comes back in and in uh, March of 2012. The economy is not doing well um, then. Uh, it is that Russia, in the boom years between 2003 and 2008, and even in the recovery period, um, was growing. Um, but uh, between 2003 and 2008, they were growing 7% on average in terms of GDP year on year. And people were accustomed to having, in, in many cases, their incomes triple annually. Well, here we are in 2012, and that's not happening. Um, and the economy doesn't recover to those 7% year-on-year growth rates. And in part, that's because of the, the, uh, the price of uh, a barrel of oil is nowhere near what it was okay. in the period when his, uh, he was president in the first two terms. So that um, he, he actually has to work, um, despite the, the control of, his, of uh, the media that he has and control of parliament to um, have legitimacy with the Russian people. And this is, I think, where we start to see foreign policy turn even more uh, into an important issue um, for him and um, him beginning to um, push the idea of Russian nationalism in 2013. So that's a strategy for him to win re-election or or to win legitimacy, and and he needs... That that help us it's, understand it's, why that needs to translate into being anti-American, right? So it it is an effort to win legitimacy, and one one thing he he does is so uh, through 2012, 2013, we start to see uh, an anti-Europe, anti-Western, okay. and anti-U.S. Why couldn't it have form. been a pro-Western? I mean, Donald Trump was pro-Russian and he got elected president. Why couldn't he have said, "Okay, I'm going to be more engaging with them as a way for legitimacy"? So, you know, that would have been that was one path, and that was a path that Medvedev took, um, with sort of mixed results, I guess, uh-huh. um, uh, but not bad results um, in terms of public opinion. Um, the path that Putin instead took uh, was a different one, possibly because he has a, he's a different generation from Medvedev and right. he has a different worldview. KGB. Right. Um, and he wanted to, um, you know, uh, I guess he had to uh, get a new legitimacy myth for his his government, and it is that everybody is against us. Against us. And um, so we don't, we don't need these Americans with uh, USAID money right. running around. Let's get rid of them. And you're obviously very yes. conversant with that because you were ambassador when that happened. And It's um, definitely my impression, right. Right. So he needed us as an enemy. Yeah. Does he still need us as an enemy? Now he's got President Trump. Maybe he can change his views because he has somebody new in the White House or this myth that you just described, is it, is, does it need to continue irrespective of who's the president in the White House? So I, I, I think it, it doesn't have to continue. Um, and um, the, the big issue here is Ukraine, of course, when, um, when people go out onto the streets in uh, Euromaidan in November of 2013 to protest um, the um, former president, well, then president's uh, decision not to sign um, a European Association Agreement. This is a real threat to Putin. Uh, he doesn't want Russians doing the same thing mm-hmm. um, in Russia. And so, um, again, uh, we see a real takeoff in, in negative coverage of this. These are fascists, and they're also, somehow they're fascists, but they're, they are also backed by Western liberals in, in mm-hmm. Europe and the United States. Um, and um, he uh, is very concerned that this will 
this uh, you know demand to be more pro-Western, pro-European will spread into Russia, um, and that would run against the myth, right? The performance legitimacy myth. Okay. So, um, it, but in, now we have Donald Trump. I mean, right. Trump's not talking about promoting democracy, and he says very kind, President Trump says very kind things about Putin. Is this an opportunity to re-engage between our two countries, or? Are there domestic political reasons why Putin can't do that? So I think there are some domestic political reasons why he can't do that. One of them is Ukraine, uh, right? And uh, so in response, the reason I mentioned Ukraine was to remind people that in response to that, of course, the U.S. slapped sanctions uh, on Russia and uh, on, on particular individuals in Russia, some of whom are very close to Mr. Putin. And some of his assets have been, uh, his own assets may well have been affected <clears throat> by those sanctions. Um, and he has counter-sanctioned um, the U.S. and right. in particular Europe. Yeah. So a lot of folks um, can't get their European cheese anymore in Moscow. Um, and this is ultimately going to hurt their economy, although there's been some uh, domestic production revival in response mm-hmm. to this. Um, but Russia's already hurting economically now. It, it um, you know, was in negative growth until the second quarter of this year when it popped into positive, but it's about like 0.25% um, growth. Um, and um, he really needs those sanctions off. Um, so, And the U.S. Congress just put a new bill and President Trump just signed them, codifying them. So they're exactly. not going to come off anytime soon. Exactly. So maybe we will continue to be in this more confrontational phase? Yeah, I think we'll, be, we'll continue to be in a confrontational phase. And clearly, yeah, Mr. Putin had hoped Mr. Trump would be able to take the sanctions off. Right. Perhaps he even wanted Mr. Trump to win um, to get the sanctions off. Right. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of rumors uh, about whether or not he has something on Mr. Trump um, and whether Bob Mueller will find that, the, the special counsel. Um, but certainly uh, President Clinton was not going to take the sanctions off. And we have seen again and again um, some of the interactions with Russian uh well, Russians are purporting to represent the Kremlin, and then perhaps Mr. Putin himself, if Mr. Trump's to be believed, um, raised the issue of adoptions, which for Russians is, for the Russian government at least, is is a euphemism for sanctions um, against uh, r- Russia. So that's because when we put it, sanctions in place in Russia against Russia in 2012, it's called the Magnitsky Act. Right. They responded by both sanctioning some Americans, but also banning adoptions for American citizens. So right. that's why those two things are interlinked, right? Right. Exactly right. Right. So, so, so I, maybe they're giving up on Donald, President Trump. Do you think they've, they maybe they, they had big expectations, and it most certainly looks like they, they tried to influence our election to get him elected. But maybe they, it's now a boomerang effect, and it's not actually beneficial to Russia what's been happening lately. Well, so it it would seem as though his hands are tied. And we did see this statement uh, on Facebook, I guess, uh, the day uh, that the the uh, he signed the bill that came from Congress that tied his hands on lifting the sanctions without checking with Congress. We did see Dmitry Medvedev, who has now become prime minister again. Right. Recall they did a shuffle yeah. uh, or castling, Can as shuffle they call back it. and forth. Right, exactly, okay. between between the uh, prime minister and the president's office. Um, 
Medvedev uh, said that you know Trump is very weak, obviously, and he is power. He has been effectively emasculated um, by the U.S. Congress. Right. Um, so um, they continue to to also formally assert that it's ridiculous that there was any kind of influence or collusion um, as well. So um, it, 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 that sounds as though they're sending a message that we're. We're really, we really thought you'd be able to do more for us, and you're not doing it. Right. Um, and um, they're not getting what they wanted if, if they did invest somehow in getting him into office. So what does it mean? What does it mean, therefore, for U.S. interests around the world? Like, do we need Russia to do the things we need to do? Or does this really curtail our ability to meet our objectives, given that this... This adversarial relationship seems to be pretty locked into place, at least for the time being. Yeah, so I actually don't think, and I argue this in, in the book that you mentioned, I don't, I don't think it's inevitable that Russia and the United States are locked in this, uh, in, in combat, or whether cold combat or, or let's hope never hard combat. Um, and, and again, you know, I would go back to the periods of cooperation in the late 1980s that we opened this, this podcast with. Um, between Gorbachev and uh, you know, Reagan and um, Clinton and Yeltsin and mm-hmm. even early Putin um, and George W. Bush. Remember, Bush looked in his eyes and saw someone he thought he could deal with. Um, so, and, and, of course, Medvedev more recently. So it's not inevitable. Our interests don't always butt up uh-huh. against one another. And, and um, I, I think when um, domestic relations are... Uh, with the domestic politics um, are uh, are calmer in Russia, then um, then relations can be can be warmer again. But the big issue here is Mr. Putin has uh, an an election again, air quotes uh, for president uh, coming up in 2018, and he, it would have been a tremendous win. He's still very popular, although we don't exactly know how you know, how tightly public opinion ratings track to voting. Mm-hmm. He he gets over 50 percent sometimes over 60% or 70 even um, for the presidency when he's run in the past, but um, his his pu- public opinion approval ratings are like 89% right now. So uh, it's it would have been a huge win for him if he could have had the sanctions removed over Ukraine and just an acceptance from the United States that Crimea is owned now by Russia and um, there are no more sanctions uh, on Russia. That's not going to happen. So why does it? Why does all of this matter to us? Well, Russia, you know, in order, again, I think, um, and my argument is about domestic politics, in order to maintain his legitimacy, and for Putin, it's an existential struggle, right? Uh, in order to stay in power, um, Russia is beginning to flex its muscles outside its borders in non-conventional ways, sometimes in conventional ways, but in other non-conventional ways. Cyber is one, of course. The other is um, Syria. Um, they really changed the facts on the ground in Syria um, by going in there. Um, and um, everyone you know who was watching thought they can't afford this, and they could afford it. And they're still there, and we still have a civil war and lots of people dying and a lot of disruption in the Middle East. Um, and it can, and they've done the same in, in Eastern Europe. So they're very disruptive power, even if, yeah. uh, if we are much more powerful economically. Um, and they, you know, that's why my book's called Resurrected Question um, Mark. Even though they're not as powerful, they're certainly able to be extremely assertive and disrupt our interests abroad. 
all the more reason why we need your book out. Uh, coming out in 2018, Resurrected, question mark, Russia's return as a global power. Uh, Catherine will have you back when the book is out, uh, but your timing could not be better. Uh, there used to be a day, I remember, you know, 20 years ago when people thought, oh, we didn't really need Russian studies anymore. The Cold War was over. Why invest in this? Uh, I think uh, uh, maybe tragically, but most certainly there's demand for people like you and demand for your book, I hope. Yeah, uh, we'll hope too. you try to sell some. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.